Welcome to Molecular Diagnostics, an eye toward the future, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientist Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, a world leader in serving science. Their mission is to enable customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. Whether the customers are accelerating life sciences research, solving complex analytical challenges, and improving clinical research workflows, Thermo Fisher Scientific is here to support them. Scientists continuously develop new assays to fill unmet diagnostic needs. While methods such as quantitative PCR have emerged as essential tools in molecular diagnostics, scientists developing and administering these assays still must overcome technical challenges. In this podcast series, the Scientists' Creative Services team talks to experts about their experiences designing and implementing assays and protocols for future molecular diagnostics. In this episode, Deanna McNeil from the Scientists' Creative Services team spoke with Gregory Songalis, Medical Director for the Center for Clinical Genomics and Advanced Technology at Dartmouth Health, about the benefits of PCR-based DNA testing for HPV screening. Hi, Dr. Sangalas. Thanks for joining me today. Can you tell me a bit about your general research interests, and more specifically about the importance of HPV screening? My lab focuses on molecular diagnostics across the whole spectrum of genetic diseases and infectious diseases, cancer, and hematology. The human papillomavirus, or HPV, has been identified as the causative agent of the majority of cervical cancers and a certain segment of head and neck cancers as well. Screening women for the pap smear stain decreases cervical cancer incidences. By identifying not just cellular abnormalities under the microscope, but now the presence of high-risk HPV DNA in the samples becomes a major initiative in cervical cancer. It's one of those tests that has become easier to do as technologies have evolved. It is probably the best success story of a cancer program. What's the difference between a pap smear and an HPV test? Typically at annual exams, women have cervical brush or swab specimens collected that get sent to the laboratory. In the laboratory, two things happen. One is that a slide gets made of the cells that was collected, and that gets stained so the pathologist can look at the morphology of the cells under the microscope. The second thing that happens is that material is also sent for HPV viral DNA testing. In that case, we extract DNA from the specimen and do a PCR-based assay or some type of an amplification-based assay to look for the presence or absence of the viral DNA. One of the papers from your research group that really interested me focused on HPV screening accessibility in low- and middle-income countries. Can you please tell me a bit about the specific accessibility needs in countries such as Honduras, Tanzania, and Kosovo, and why different settings require alternative testing approaches? In the developed world, we have programs that are set up specifically to do this. We have expertise, laboratory staff, cytopathologists to evaluate the samples that are collected. In low- and middle-income countries, they may have the expertise but not the capacity, or they 
lack of the ability to provide access to women that are living in very remote regions of those countries. One of the things we identified in 2012 in Honduras was the issue of metastatic cervical cancer and the prevalence of that. While we see that here in the U.S., we don't see it to the extent that you would see in low- and middle-income countries. And it's directly proportional to not being able to screen women routinely for the disease. In Honduras, they have the ability to do pap smears, but they only have a handful of cytopathologists in the country that can screen the slides. Oftentimes, the results wouldn't be available for months later, which at that time, women are lost to follow-up. We were able to identify in that setting the ability to do a real-time PCR assay that doesn't require somebody staining and interpreting the slide. These tests could be done relatively quickly while women were still in the clinic so that any follow-up appointments or discussions could happen. There are strains of HPV that carry a low risk of cervical cancer and others that carry a higher risk. Which high-risk HPV strains does your PCR method assess? High-risk strains have been shown to lead to cervical cancer and head and neck cancer. Having said that, not every infection with a high-risk HPV type leads to cancer. We're screening women for the appropriate high-risk type so that if they are positive, they can have follow-up visits and to make sure that the viral infection is not progressing towards cervical cancer. We look for 14 different high-risk viral types in Honduras and Tanzania and Kosovo. The 14 high-risk types were tested for in the same way, but in the U.S., for example, type 16 and 18 were the most prevalent. In Honduras, type 16 was one of the most prevalent viruses, but we had other types that we don't typically see in the U.S. The assay we use at Dartmouth identifies whether somebody's positive or negative for a high-risk type, and whether it's type 16, 18, or the other 12 high-risk HPV types. The tests we developed and validated for use in low- and middle-income countries allows us to test for all 14 high-risk types simultaneously. Multiplex real-time PCR gives us that information in one test instead of multiple tests. How do these tests fare in the harsh environmental conditions that exist in some low- and middle-income countries? The PCR-based assay is incredibly robust in the low- and middle-income countries. We don't have lab setups and facilities like in the United States. We're in very remote parts of countries in small villages that don't have refrigeration or air conditioning or running water most of the time. Even in cities, the larger hospitals are not as advanced. So testing has to be incredibly robust to provide accurate results in very hot temperatures, high humidity, dusty conditions, and, and so on. I think PCR is the best way to do this. You describe using a rice cooker as an incubation tool in your paper. 
Where did the idea for implementing a home kitchen gadget as a lab device come from? We had to extract DNA from the sample. Here we have nice instrumentation and automation that will allow us to do that very effectively and give us a, a nicely purified DNA and RNA sample. In Honduras, we didn't have the luxury of bringing a DNA extraction instrument with us. Uh, power supply is always another issue that we have to think about in some of these areas of the world that we go to. We had developed a very crude cell lysate method where you boil the sample for five or 10 minutes and, and then use that crude lysate in the PCR reaction. That seemed to work well, except when we started screening hundreds of women a day, one of my postdocs, Aaron Atkinson, was down in Honduras and, and noticed somebody cooking with one of these rice steamers. The tray inside the rice steamer has all these holes in it. The holes were the perfect size to fit uh, our tubes that the samples were in. That was able to process I think, 50 or 60 samples at a time, if not more and then move that right into the PCR reaction. That gave us the capacity to screen many women as a day. When we first started the program, we were told anywhere from 80 to 100 women would come to this kind of health fair clinic. The first time we went down, we had over 400 women waiting in line to be seen as part of the HPV screening program. How can your vast experience over the years help other researchers who might be interested in implementing a PCR-based approach to infectious disease screening, either in North America or in low- and middle-income areas like Honduras? In the molecular diagnostic space, infectious disease testing was our first introduction to high-throughput, high-volume tests. Not every test is created equal. And not every specimen type uh, is created equal. If you were going to test a, a body fluid, you couldn't assume that every type of fluid was going to perform the same way. If you were going to test a particular type of tissue, you couldn't assume that every tissue was going to perform the same way, even though you developed a really nice assay. That pre-analytical variability of collecting the sample, transporting it to the laboratory, and processing it introduced all kinds of variables we weren't familiar with when we started doing this 20 or 30 years ago that evolved into incredibly robust testing algorithms and uh, workflows. Are there any changes or improvements to PCR-based HPV genotyping that you would like to see implemented in the future? In the developed world, it's become standard of care to, to do this type of screening. In the developing world, funding is not the same. Uh, any way we can do things cheaper uh, is always welcome. Foster is always welcome, too. Even here in the U.S., it would be great to have a point-of-care device where we could do this in a matter of minutes as the patient is being examined uh, for a routine annual exam or in a clinic so that we can modify strategies while they're there. Thank you, Dr. Sangalas, for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm excited to see what the future holds.
Thank you for listening to Molecular Diagnostics, an eye toward the future. And thanks again to Gregory Sangalis, Medical Director for the Center for Clinical Genomics and Advanced Technology at Dartmouth Health. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts.